questions haunt every life, writes Andy Crouch. The first, what are we meant to be? The second, why are we so far from what we're meant to be? Hello and welcome to Restoring the Soul, a podcast dedicated to helping you close the gap from what you're meant to be and what keeps you from being all that. I'm your producer, Brian Beatty. Thank you for listening. Michael's guest on today's podcast is Dr. Barbara Peacock, an experienced preacher, teacher, and minister of discipleship and prayer. Dr. Peacock trains in spiritual direction and soul care for ministry leaders and has a God-given call and desire to serve as spiritual coach for individuals and groups. Her latest book is titled Soul Care in African American Practice. It's a fascinating look at prayer, spiritual direction, and soul care, and how the transatlantic journey for the slaves was an entry point or beginning of spiritual direction and soul care from an African-American perspective. As she and Michael wrap up this second half of their conversation, they'll discuss the impact of Frederick Douglass, Dr. Martin Luther and Coretta Scott King, and Dr. Renita Weems. Be sure to listen the whole way through the interview as Barbara leads us in the practice of Lectio Divina. So without any further delay, here's your host, Michael John Cusick. I almost hesitate to say this because it seems sacrilegious as a white man, but I had this sense that with this suffering, which one could never justify, that there's a kind of advantage that African-Americans have to the spirituality because this this is so woven into their soul and their inner being, which goes back to you grew up on a farm and there was something internal in you that you used the term earlier. It's part of our DNA that people that don't have a history of suffering or they don't have a history of needing God other than to pray a prayer and to go to heaven, that it's oftentimes their life is frankly, superficial, and their faith doesn't have a lot of rootedness to it. Yes. Uh, it kind of brings me back to the term we call white privilege. And uh, I remember having a conversation with a dear friend over the summer uh, sitting out on my deck, and he was feeling guilty <laughs> of the white privilege. So I just kind of flipped it. I said, what makes you think that your life was so much better than mine? <laughs> I said, I enjoyed my life and I've enjoyed it. So we, we, we tend to think that one way is better than the other. But we have to look at the context. Yes, I understand the concept of white privilege, that whites can get away with certain things, X, Y, and Z. But to think one has white privilege, I think it's oppression within that mindset, even within itself. I have to oppress you to think I'm better than you, which means to me, you it's like some type of psychology going on in the head that in Christ, there's nobody's better than anybody. And uh, I want to sing a song to you uh, uh, and to those listening, Michael, if you don't mind. Oh, please. I feel like I'm talking to the the female version of Cornell West because you're, you know, <laughs> Cornell will, will be reading from something and then singing and requiting poetry. So again, please. It's a song I learned in fourth grade. Mm. As I said, I was raised on the farm, but in fourth grade, I went to live with my aunt and uncle in Baltimore, Maryland, and I attended Carter G. Woodson School. And at Carter G. Woodson School, I had a white teacher, but I didn't know he was white. Because I was living with my aunt, so I sent the picture back to my mother 
of this man that was my teacher. And she was like, why did you send me a picture of this white man? And I was like, oops, I didn't know he was white. So anyway, he taught us this song and I just thought it was wonderful. And I'm, I'm not the, the psalmist by no means. I'm not Alicia Keys and any of that. I'm just uh, homegrown, but the song has wonderful implications. And it goes like this. Good night, I said to my little son. So tired when the day was done. Then he said, as I tucked him in, tell me, daddy, what color Scott's skin? What color is Scott's skin? What color is Scott's skin? I said, it's black, brown, yellow. Is it red? Is it white? Every man's the same in the good Lord's sight. He looked at me with the shining eyes. I knew I could tell no lies. He said, Daddy, why do the different races fight? If every man's the same in the good Lord's sight. What color is God's skin? What color is God's skin? I said, it's black, brown, yellow. Is it red? Is it white? Every man's the same in the good Lord's sight. Every man's the same in the good Lord's sight. Every man's the same in the good Lord's sight. Good Lord's sight. Thank you for that. I love how it included the the hard question or the hard point. There's a more popular version of that red and yellow, black and white, you know, but, but it doesn't have the part about why do people fight? In other words, it, it high, what you saying highlights the reality that, Hey, it might be true. Everyone's equal, but that's not how it plays out. Especially a fourth grade girl that's singing that song. Yeah. I believe that song formed me a lot and I taught it to my daughter or our daughter and she Believed it just like I believed it. You know, as you were singing, I saw on the Zoom screen, you closed your eyes and I closed my eyes and I just kind of took it in. And not unlike Visio Divina, we probably take singing for granted much more in the church than something like Visio Divina or Lexio Divina. But the singing, there's a vibration, there's a resonance within that it gets into our bones. I think this is an okay thing to say. And again, forgive me for being the uninformed white man, but the term Negro spiritual. That's something that I believe is still used to describe the spiritual songs that were sung as slaves were working in the fields. And the song that you sang had a simplicity to it. And there were ups and downs that seemed very intentional that bring different levels of resonance inside. So first, can you talk about the importance of songs for the men and women that their spirituality grew in that suffering and that passage across the Atlantic, but also just what's the effect of that singing on us? Yes, singing is a great part of our culture. We remember the late Aretha Franklin. She was uh, considered the queen of soul. We sing the blues. Uh, We sung um, in the fields to Keep, keep ourselves motivated. <laughs> you know, when you're tired and you're hurting, what are you going to do? 
Sometimes you just moan. And uh, when you start off with a church that has no instruments, no organs, no pianos, no guitars, no drums, our hands and our feet became our instruments. Our voices became our instruments. And so song and Negro spirituals are very important. But I think about Harriet Tubman, (laughs) who used singing as a code language to call out to those that were being summons for the Underground Railroad, which was a movement to free slaves. And so singing brings healing. Singing touches the soul. Singing is meaningful. And they're they're, then their love songs. (laughs) Today's my husband's birthday. (laughs) And uh, a love song is a good thing on a birthday. Mm. Um, We've been married for 42 years. And I'm thankful to uh, have the opportunity to be married to a man that loves God and loves me. And that was my prayer for our daughter that when she got married one day, that she would marry a man that loves God and loves her. But a man cannot love a woman effectively until he first loves God. So many good things in so many different directions. I want to come back to uh, the book, and you talked about how it's divided into two sections. And I want to talk about a couple of the characters, and I'd like to end with uh, Dr. Renita Weems as you talk about detachment. But uh, Frederick Douglass, who was a freed slave and um, educated and went on to become a prominent uh, leader in the Black community and in history, and you spoke about how Lectio Divina, this sacred reading, uh, and that practice was something that was a part of his life and not just something he did, but something that he actually became. Can you comment on that? Yes, indeed. Uh, one of the things that was necessary, if, if uh, being that I was writing a book about spiritual disciplines, that's really what uh, soul care and African-American practice is. It's about spiritual disciplines and spiritual disciplines don't have a color. And at the end, I talk about is the spirituality of, a person different or alike, you know? So in the end, yes, it may be different. Maybe we sing uh, Negro spirituals, but we all are, are, are focusing on the same purpose. That's the relationship with God that we're seeking, the intimacy with God. So we're more, we're more alike than we are different. So as I search for persons that practice spiritual disciplines, I had to get into the psyche of the person for it to be drawn out in order for me to understand the journey of the slave. I had to be on the ship in order for me to understand. uh, I mean, I didn't go looking up Frederick Douglass. I was just reading about Frederick Douglass. And as I read about Frederick Douglass and I read that his uh, master's wife, Mrs. Ald, A-U-L-D, um, was the one that taught Frederick Douglass to read. I was intrigued. 
because as I read, I came to understand that Mrs. Ald would read to her children. She would read the Bible to her children. And she noticed while she was reading the Bible to her children that as a young boy, Douglas took an interest. And so she began to read the Bible to Douglas and he began to memorize it. Wow. Just through the reading. Just through the reading. So her reading, she read slowly to Douglas. And as we look at the different steps of uh, uh, Lectio, we see that it's a slow, sacred reading. And so when I looked at the journey of Douglas, I was like, aha, that's a man who practiced Lectio that would never be attributed to practicing that discipline if God had not shown me what was really going on. But Mr. All didn't like Douglas learning. Mm. Because he knew that learning was power. Knowledge was power. But thank God for Mrs. All. Thank God that God put that desire in her heart and in his heart, in her desire to fulfill it and his heart to know it. And that's how God began to grow Douglas up. And later on, he became an educated man and a phenomenal speaker. And uh, I attribute his learning to read that slow, sacred reading as the discipline of Lectio Divina. And correct me if I'm wrong, but as you're talking about discipline, yes, that's something that we can do as a practice, but with almost all of the people you wrote about, it was more about something that they became that. They became Lectio Divina. They became uh, someone that offered the wisdom of spiritual direction. They became contemplation and meditation. Um, I was really looking to identify spiritual disciplines and people of African-American descent, disciplines that they practice, that they would not have been noted as having practicing or having practiced these disciplines if I didn't point them out. Talk about Dr. King. You um, listed him as spiritual director and prayer, and you tied that to the prophetic. Yes. One of my first passions is prayer. I love the discipline of prayer. My mother was an intercessor. My grandmother was an intercessor. Today, I went to the homegoing service of a man who was an intercessor, uh, a friend, Bob Furster. Martin Luther King, I mean, prayer was, it's easy to identify prayer in our communities. Uh, we are, we've always been a people of prayer and we still are. We've, and so Martin Luther King was an intercessor I believe he received his directives from God to move forward. He was a student of Gandhi, which made him uh, a contemplative because he learned the discipline and the practice of, of meditation, of stillness, of quieting himself, of listening. And in this listening, he learned the ability to uh, receive directives from God. He prayed with his uh, spiritual leaders. He prayed with his wife. And it's out of this prayer lifestyle that he knew the next step to do, even at the cost of his own life. And so uh, I use uh, identify Martin Luther King as not just a spiritual director, like in a session one on one or with a small group, uh, listening to people, and, uh, uh, that loving, listening presence. But how he had that loving, listening presence as God used him to direct a nation through the civil rights movement and freedom for people of color. Yeah, you just said it. 
my thought was that he was a spiritual director for the whole country and for the whole world in terms of the impact that he had. Um, so you quoted him on page 42, and you said, as, as you quoted him, he said, contemplative action is action that emerges from our real encounters with God. And one of the things I see happening in the world today is there's a lot of angry people, a lot of hurt people, a lot of scared people, and there's a lot of action. It's not that we're inactive, but it's that that action is not fruitful because it's often coming up against one another, not hearing one another, and um, it almost seems to backfire. So there's something that's being referred here that it's out of an overflow of a depth, a depth with God that it's contemplative and yet it's action. So can you talk about that? And as a as a minister of the gospel, how that has worked for you? Because in ministry, it's there's such a pull to do. Can you ask a pat question, Michael? <laughs> that was a pat question. Yeah, and I, I, I think I probably asked five questions there. But yeah, just start with this whole idea. Yeah, I'll start with to be to be. The importance is to be more so than to do. The first call is to be. Uh, because I won't know what to do if I don't first stop to know how to be. And in my being is God that gives me directives to do. So therefore, my doing is more effective than me just catapulting out of my own desire. So that's the to be and to do. Um, Well, at least one aspect. And then we talk about the journey of Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King had a rich genealogy. He had a rich uh, heritage. His father was a pastor. His mother was an intercessor. So he and he was a student of the word and he studied the lives of others. And all of this was in him when he went to serve the country. So he he could practice nonviolence because he knew God loved him and he knew what love is and what love was because God is love. And I can only love another if I first know God loves me because it's out of the overflow of God's love for me that I'm able to share with others. That's why David says my cup runs over. He had enough love, not just for himself, but he had a cup full of love that ran over to love others. And so when we look at the violence in the street, and if I am not full, if I don't see any hope, if I'm tired, I don't know all that's going on in the mind of a person who practices violence. But I know as an African-American woman who lives in a world, I read something um, yesterday it said that African-Americans need to be careful because there's a report out that people will have uh, road rage and run you off the road and they encourage you not to ride alone. That's a fear. Mm. So today when I went to my friend's funeral, I did not want to go alone because I didn't know what people were are, are capable of. So I can't I can't point the finger. It's not that I agree with violence, but if I don't know what you've been through, 
If I don't know your struggle, if I don't know how, what makes you act out, then who am I to judge? I'm not saying it's right, but I'm saying if if that's what's necessary for us to be heard sometime, that's what's going to happen. And sometimes that's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah, I was just going to say that's a that's an unpopular message, but the gospel is unpopular, isn't it? In terms of how it it invites us to uh, let go of our own agenda, which might be to react and to hate our enemy instead of love Jesus our enemy. Jesus not going to the temple and turn the tables over. And 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 I and I and I talk about in my book when I experienced a time of a low depression, the dark night of my soul. But of course, I couldn't explain everything. But I remember being in this mental state where I I was I had this rage in me, and I didn't know where it was coming from. I I couldn't get no relief, and I looked in in our bedroom, and I saw these big beautiful armoires, and I just wanted to pick that armoire up and turn it over because there was and nobody had done anything to me personally. It was just this point of life, and I looked at that armoire and I was like, well, that's probably not a good idea. I'll put a big dent in the wall. <laughs> we probably have to get some more sheetrock. So that's not a good idea. So I, I hurried down to the uh, family room and there was a little card table in there with a little plastic top and little metal legs. And I threw that over and I felt better. I wasn't hurting anybody, but that was when the, within the privacy of my own home. So. Um, Sometimes we have to walk a mile in another person's shoes. If I don't have food, if I can't pay my bills, if I don't have a job, if my child has been shot, can you talk about um, Mrs. Coretta Scott King? Dr. King's wife, who just two years or so ago that she passed. Is that correct? Uh, it's been a few years. Uh, I had an opportunity of attending her homegoing service at um, uh, Bishop Long's church there in Atlanta, New Birth. Uh, I was blessed to go to school with Bishop Long, who passed a few years ago. But uh Doctor, she was also had several honorary degrees. She was a pillar in um, Dr. King's life, and her life was oft, often threatened even when he wasn't there. Um, I mean, we don't have any record of her committing any violent scene, but can you imagine your life being threatened while your husband's away trying to serve his country? Excuse me, and be faithful to his assignment. So, um, I talk about Dr. King as being an intercessor and a spiritual rights, a spiritual director, the discipline of prayer and spiritual direction. And I talk about Mrs. King with prayer and civil rights. And I, I kind of took the liberty to develop this discipline called civil rights, like uh, what it takes to cause change, what it takes to make a difference. And uh, Mrs. King took up that mantle to continue to serve our community, even after her husband had passed. And the importance of women, strong Black women in the African-American community, such as 
Dr. Coretta Scott King. And then her children went on to also be in ministry. Uh, and I was a professor at Colorado Christian, and I'm actually blanking on which of the grown daughters it was, but she came um, and spoke at the university, which was a radical thing back then for that Bernice. university. Yes, Bernice. yes. Dr. Yeah. Bernice, yes, yes. Yes, it was. And isn't Dr. King's son uh, Dexter, and he's serving in Atlanta? Yes. Uh, yes, he is. Yes. Yes. I don't know a whole lot about them, but I know they're still serving and carrying the mantle of their parents. And how could they not? You can't get away from it. Right. But but those, those his parents, they're, they're like one of a kind. I mean, there's only one uh, Dr. Martin Luther King and there's only one Coretta Scott King. Can you talk about Dr. Renita Weems? And yeah. I was so fascinated by this uh, this discipline of detachment and attachment. And one of the things that I used to teach um, classes at the seminary on addiction, along with spiritual formation. And so attachment and detachment are very much related to that historically. You know, what we give our heart to, we attach to because we're made for that. So I thought it was fascinating that you included that as a discipline. Yes, uh, Dr. Weems. Um, a minister of the gospel, a professor at Vanderbilt in in Tennessee, uh, has been serving in the faith community for decades. And she talks about how she hit a brick wall. And when she hit that wall, she didn't know what to do and how she sought out other uh, spiritual faiths within within Christendom, uh, in particular the Catholic Church, um, for healing. And one thing that she learned and one thing also in uh, Adele Calhoun's book on spiritual discipline, she talks about uh, detachment, the discipline of detachment and attachment. But with the discipline of detachment and attachment, when I come away from something, I'm letting that go. So therefore, I have a void. I have an open space. So in order for me to live a healthy life, when I detach from something that I'm accustomed to having that space filled, then it's imperative that I attach to something of greater value, which we know in this case is our relationship with the Lord. And uh, as you read the text in the Bible about the strong man that that went away and he came back, And he saw the house swept clean, but he came back seven times stronger. So that meant that the house was swept clean. Something had left, but nothing of spiritual value has filled that space. So that's why the strong man could come back seven times stronger. So um, the discipline of detachment and attachment. And so uh, for years now, I've been trying to clean my closet. Not that it's junky. I just, God has just blessed me and I just need to get rid of some stuff. And so um, I'm going to have to detach from some things. But if I'm going to detach from some items in my closet, uh, I don't want to bring more items in. I want to find something of greater value to be to be a blessing to my soul. Uh, and so instead of uh, shopping, <laughs> then maybe I need to go to the hospital or maybe I need to witness or maybe I need to do other things. But you, But that space is there. So we have to fill that space with something a more value than just thinking, oh, that's done. And, you know, if I'm smoking, if I'm going to smoke, then I want to stop smoking. Do I have that habit of smoking? So maybe I'll start chewing gum. 
So I detach from the cigarette to attach to gum. And maybe I'll detach from the gum to attach to a mint. And maybe I'll detach from the mint to drink water. And after a while, I won't even think about it. But it's a process of healing to become more holistic in the faith. Yeah, so somehow having to feed the soul with something life-giving as opposed to just starving uh, and hoping that that withers because oftentimes that doesn't work. Yes, oftentimes it doesn't. I have a final question, and then I don't know if you have time, but I'm wondering if as we wrap up, you would be willing and able to lead us in a brief Lectio Divina with a, a passage of Scripture that's on your heart. And so maybe the maybe the question could be the segue. Here's my question, and this is what I I spend a lot of time thinking about. How does the gospel of Jesus Christ heal racism in America? I think about the uh, scripture in Joshua that says, meditate on the word day and night and do according to all that is written therein. And then I will make your way prosperous. And then you will have good success. So if the world, if America meditated on the truth of the gospel, and Paul encourages us to rightly divide it, not to have lenses, our own lenses when we come. The healing is in the Bible. And at the end of the day, love is the key. If we follow the great commandment and the great commission and Second Chronicles 714, we have healing in the land. But we got to put the work in. And I think sometimes we become overwhelmed with the massiveness of healing that needs to occur. And healing starts with one person at a time one conversation at a time. And the scripture I would like for us to meditate on for Lectio is Psalm um, 46 and 10. It says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Now, that's a lot to chew off. So we're going to, if we look at, uh, this is 10A, B, and C. So A would be, be still and know that I am God. B would be, I will be exalted among the nations. C would be, I will be exalted in the earth. And we know that uh, this whole passage is in the midst of nations raging, according to verse 6. The earth is melting. There's desolations. There are wars and there's fire. And God is saying in the midst of the chaos, 
in the midst of uncertainty and destruction and loss and pain and anguish. And if we look at it personally in our own lives, in the midst of our own busyness and activities and ideologies and idolatry, God is saying, stop. Pause. Sit. Rest. And be still. And know that I am God. God of the earth and God of the nations. Be still. And know that I am God. You be still. You know. You honor me as Lord. And as we look at this scripture, we want to extract three or four words that speak to you. It may be be still and. It may be know that I. It may be I am God. Just identify three or four words that speak to you. Just focus on those words. And ask God, what is he saying to you as it relates to those few words? And then as we move further, We listen once again. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Now I'm going to ask you to choose one word. Just one word. And when you have that one word, just meditate on it. It's one single word that God is speaking to you to focus on. And how God is calling you to live about that word in your life today and tomorrow and days to come. One word. God, we thank you for this time your presence, your direction, and your power. We know that heaven and earth will pass away, but 
but your word will stand forever. We thank you for this time that you have allowed us to sit at your feet and to sup with you. And we pray that we are the better because we dare to sit and listen and grow and apply as disciples in the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Dr. Peacock, I... I think I'm only a few years younger than you, um, not that many, but I feel like I've been sitting with uh, a spiritual sage, and it's really, really, beyond talking about your book, it's just so rich to uh, to be with your soul. So I thank you for your time and for all the the wisdom and the care and the labor that went into writing Soul Care in African American Practice. Truly a blessing being with you. So thank you. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to us continuing our conversation as the Lord leads. So thank you for listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. We want you to know that Restoring the Soul is so much more than a podcast. What we're all about is helping couples and individuals get unstuck. You know how some people go to counseling or marriage therapy for months or even years, and never really get anywhere? Our intensive programs help clients get unstuck in as little as two weeks. To learn more, visit RestoringTheSoul.com. That's RestoringTheSoul.com.